If you have a Bible, you will need it this morning. I'd like you to find Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. This is week 2 in our summer walk through the book of Hebrews. And there are some notes in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along with what we're going to discuss this morning. I want to start with an idea I shared with you last week. It's a big picture summary of the book of Hebrews, and it's an idea we're going to come back to all through the summer. Negatively, the book of Hebrews was written to warn Christians about the danger of falling away. So there's this negative warning. Don't do this. Don't fall away from the faith. Positively, Hebrews was written to encourage Christians to persevere in the faith. Hang in there. Keep going. Keep trusting in in Jesus. Keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. And this theme runs all the way through the book. And I told you last week, we will get to the question of security of the believer, right? Can you lose your salvation or can you not lose your salvation? We're going to wrestle with that later in the book of Hebrews. For now, I just want you to see there's these dual themes running all the way through the book. Do not fall away from the faith. Keep trusting in Jesus. All the theology, all the doctrine, all the Old Testament references and quotations. It's not just for debating fine points of doctrine. It's all for a very practical purpose, and that is warning us, don't fall away, and encouraging us, keep following Jesus. Chapter 2 fits with that theme. Chapter 2 begins with a call, and I've just given you a few quotes here, to pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it, or that we would neglect such great a salvation. Right, So it fits with this theme. We're going to pay attention to what we've heard. Why? So we don't drift from it, and we don't want to neglect such a great salvation. Now, we're not going to be able to dig in deep to the entire passage, so I just want to say a few things about uh, Hebrews 2, 1, 2, 3, and 4. There's a few words that I want you to notice in the first four verses. The first word is the word therefore, and we talked about it last week. Hebrews chapter 2 begins with the word therefore. Pay attention. And the therefore takes you back to everything that you just read about in Hebrews 1. Jesus is great. Jesus is glorious. Nobody's like Jesus. He's one of a kind. Therefore, we need to pay attention. And we need to remember who Jesus is and how great he is and how glorious he is because the result is if we forget, we might just drift away. I want you to notice the word retribution in verse 2. The message declared by angels, since it proved to be reliable, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. And it's talking about the old covenant. And it's saying there was people who received this message from God. It was clear, it was true, it was reliable. And they did not listen to it. And every sin was dealt with. There was retribution for sin. And he's warning us, do not drift away from this. The God who brought justice and retribution to his people in the Old Testament can do the same thing today. Don't fall away. Keep trusting in Jesus. Lastly, the word proof. God proved this message, and you can read that in Hebrews 2, verse 3 and 4, that God bore witness to this message. It was declared by the Lord, and it was attested by those who heard, and there were signs and wonders and miracles and gifts. You can read about that in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, in the book of Acts, the apostles. God proved this message was true. 
He has proved to you that you need to listen to it. So don't forget it. Pay close and careful attention to it, lest you drift away. Now, I want to try to just take a moment. This isn't going to be the main emphasis of the sermon, but I want to take a moment to think about this phrase, drift away. What does it mean to drift away? One of the ways we try to understand things in the Bible that may not be immediately familiar to us is by saying, it's not like this and it is like this, okay? So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Don't drift away. Drifting away is not like going to preteen camp and being launched off the blob into the lake, okay? Hunter put together a little montage for me from preteen camp this week. So you get someone on the platform, and you get a victim down on the blob, and here comes Hunter. That was me. There you go. This is an unsuspecting fourth grader. And this is our youth intern, Kelsey. Yeah. We're taking applications for youth interns next year. If anybody's interested, see me after church, and we'd love to sign you up. We told Kelsey, Kelsey, you are immediately number one among the intern rankings for the summer with the backflip off the blob. Look, when you're on the end of the blob, you don't just drift away off the edge, right? You are launched, and it's violent. It's like being in a car wreck. I have a bruise down the left side of my leg that shows you there's no drifting away you are launched violently away from it. Drifting away is more like the other side of the waterfront at preteen camp where they have these, paddle boats. Don't paddle boats look like fun when someone else is on them? You look at that, those aren't our kids, that's just a a picture I snagged off the internet today. But you see people on paddle boats and you think, no, that looks nice. I, I would like to get on one of those, they're just pedaling around, you get to be out on the water, and then you get on the paddle boat and you realize the steering is wonky, and it's really hard to paddle. And what happens is you get on the paddle boat, you paddle for a couple of minutes, you get way away from the dock, you're exhausted, and you just stop. And when you stop on the paddle boat, what do you do? You just drift, whichever way the wind's blowing, whichever way the current's blowing. Hopefully, it's blowing you back to the dock and you don't have to paddle all the way back, but usually it doesn't work that way. And usually at some point you say, okay, I gotta get with it here. We gotta start paddling. We gotta get this thing pointed in the right direction, but it's very easy to drift, okay? When the author of Hebrews, chapter two, verse one, says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That phrase, drift away, is a nautical term. It describes a boat that has not been tied down, that doesn't have an anchor holding it in place, and it's just blowing. Wherever the wind takes it, wherever the current takes it, it is literally drifting away. I think this is how most people in the Bible Belt end up far from Jesus. I don't think usually it's like being on the end of the blob and some big dramatic thing happens and you're launched away with scars to prove it. I think usually you just drift. I don't think most people plan to quit attending worship. 
I think they miss a week here, and they get sick this week, and then they go on vacation, and then a habit is formed, and they just sort of slowly drift away. I don't think most people in the Bible Belt, most church-going people, I don't think they set out with a decision to say, I will not disciple and teach my children. I think most people set out with a great plan and, and great intentions to say, I want to pass down the faith to the next generation, to the people coming after me, but it's hard, and it takes time, and we're lazy, and we just sort of drift. I don't think most people in the Bible Belt, especially church attenders, mean for the Bible to sit on their nightstand and get a thick layer of dust on the top of it. I think most people start off a new year and say, hey, I'm going to read the Bible this year. But you get to Leviticus and you miss a day here and you miss a day there and you just sort of slowly start to drift. I think most people who walk away from the faith don't usually have some big thing that happens. I think they just sort of slowly drift away. One Bible scholar says it like this, Kent Hughes, drifting is the besetting sin of our day. That's what we do best. We just drift. We start something, we get out there, we realize it's kind of tough, and we just start to drift. Somebody you've heard of, C.S. Lewis said it like this, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by honest argument. Do not most people simply drift away? The author of Hebrews understands human nature very, very well. He knows that there can be big, dramatic things that happen in life that sort of send you flying away from Jesus and and do damage to your relationship with the Lord. But he also understands it's very dangerous that you might drift. You know what month it is right now, right? It's June, summertime. This is when a lot of people just start to drift. The summer is busy and you're going on vacation and you're kind of ready for a break. The kids are home and you're staying up later at night You just sort of start to drift. And you know what happens? You get into the fall, and guess what? The fall's also busy. Back to school, back to work, back to routine. And you say, oh, you know, we've got so many things we have to do right now. We'll get with that stuff later. And then before you know it, it's the holidays. And guess what? Holidays are busy. And you end up in January, and you say, I hadn't hadn't been to church. I haven't served in church. I haven't been faithful in the the spiritual disciplines and the means of grace for months. What happened? It wasn't that you set out in the month of June and said, I've had enough of Jesus. You just drift. You just drift away. And the book of Hebrews is warning us about the danger of drifting. All of that brings us to the big idea that we're going to focus on. It's really the back half of Hebrews chapter 2. The big idea of the second chapter of Hebrews is this. The Son of God became a human being to suffer and die as our merciful and faithful high priest. The Son of God became a human being to suffer and die as our merciful and our faithful high priest. Hebrews 1 has a very strong emphasis on the deity of the Son of God. He is not just an angel He's greater than them. He's the creator of the angels. He is fully and truly God. Hebrews 2 is going to turn around, and it's not going to bat an eye at the idea that Jesus is God, but it's going to add to it the idea that Jesus, the Son of God, became a human being. He is fully God, 
and he is fully man. In the book of Hebrews, for the first time in chapter 2, says he is our high priest. It's going to show up in this book over a dozen times. It's going to come up over and over and over again. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. So that's the big idea. Let's read the chapter, and then we'll pray and jump in. Hebrews 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will." Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. We read this from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood... He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's the word of God, Hebrews 2. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word. And we believe that it's true. We believe that it is sufficient. We believe that it is authoritative over our lives. And this morning we want to see Jesus. We want to see how Hebrews 2 describes Jesus. We want to believe and have faith in Jesus. We want to trust in Jesus, our great high priest. Father, give us eyes to see the truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of things that people disagree about. Uh, Get on social media for five minutes, you'll find a disagreement. 
We cannot agree about a lot of different things. One thing that we can all agree about, and I think social media itself proves this to you, is that we are not the kind of people that we ought to be. And this world is not the kind of place that we wish it was. Corey read earlier from Psalm 8, and the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8, and he says some interesting things. He talks about human beings being given dominion over creation. And Psalm 8 lists out all the different things that we had dominion over. But then the author of Hebrews comes back at the end of verse 8 in chapter 2 and says, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. God gave us this dominion, but when you look around, you realize, we all realize, we're not really exercising that dominion and that control and that authority very well. This world is not the kind of place that it ought to be. We are not the kind of people that we ought to be. We don't rule over the world well because we don't rule over ourselves well. G.K. Chesterton said it like this, whatever else is true about man, this one thing is certain, Here's what we can all agree on. Man is not what he was meant to be. That's pretty obvious when you look around the world and you look at human beings. You come away with the conclusion, all of us can agree, we're just not who we ought to be. We don't rule ourselves the way we ought to rule ourselves, and we don't rule over what God has entrusted to us. And the author of Hebrews points this out, chapter 2, verse 8, and says, everything is not yet under subjection to him. What we do see the author of Hebrews tells us, is Jesus. We don't see human beings ruling themselves and ruling creation the way we ought. What we do see is God's solution to that problem. And it's not us trying harder. It's not us doing better. It's God himself coming and intervening in this world to set things right. And Hebrews 2, above all, describes Jesus as a merciful and a faithful high priest. And so this morning, we just want to ask and answer one simple question. What does Hebrews 2, particularly the last little paragraph, verse 14 to 18, what does it teach us about Jesus, our merciful and our faithful high priest? I want you to see five truths, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, our high priest was human, not an angel. He was a human being, Jesus, not an angel. So let's just get square on our anthropology and our angelology, okay? There are human beings, and there are angelic beings. And angelic beings are angelic beings. They're not human. And human beings are human beings. They're not angelic. And when you die or at any other point in your life or your existence from now to all eternity, you're never going to switch species. You understand that? Sometimes we talk about people who have passed away and we say, oh, they got their wings, heaven got a new angel. No, there's a new human who has crossed over into eternity. Human beings do not become angelic beings. And it's really an odd idea to think that way, if you just back up for a second. It would sort of be like little Timmy, who his puppy Spot dies, and he's so sad, and the mom comes up to little Timmy, and he's crying about his dog, and mom says, it's okay, little Timmy, Spot's going to be a great cat in doggy heaven. Like, he's a dog. Dogs are dogs. If there's a doggy heaven, they're not going to be cats. Not going to be any cats in any kind of heaven, but <laughs> you get the idea. Dogs are dogs, cats are cats, humans are humans, angels are angels. And the author of Hebrews tells us 
verse 16, it is not the angels that he helps. The Son of God did not become an angel. He became a human. He became for a little while lower than the angelic creatures. That's the marvel of the incarnation, that the Creator became one of the creatures, in a sense, without ceasing to be who He was as God. And chapter 2 ties all this together, and it's hard for our brains to hold it together. Did you notice verse 10? Verse 10 describes Jesus as the one for whom and by whom all things exist. Everything that was created was made for Jesus and by Jesus. He's the creator. He's God. Verse 9, for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. Verse 14, he partook of flesh and blood. It's a great mystery. And it's not something that I can explain to you with nice, neat categories so that you can put your arms all the way around it. Do you know why? Because we're creatures talking about the Creator. And so our job is not to figure it all out. Our job is to listen to what the Scriptures say and to believe it with faith. To say, you know what? I, I don't get how the one for whom and by whom all things exist could become a human being. I don't know how that works. I don't understand that. He was fully God and fully human at the same time. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to be able to write a mathematical formula to explain it all. You just have to believe it by faith. Jesus was human. He knew what it was like to work long hours and come home with an achy back. He partook of flesh and blood. He knows, he knew and experienced what it was like to be hungry and to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to have a friend that you cared very deeply about who completely turned his back on you and betrayed you. He knows what it's like to stand at the graveside of somebody you care very deeply about and to be faced with the finality and the horror of death. And to weep. He knows what that's like. Verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, the one for whom and by whom all things exist, that one, the creator, the Jesus, the son of God described in Hebrews 1, he likewise partook of the same things. He was human. He was not angel. Secondly, he experienced temptation. Our high priest experienced temptation. Look at chapter 2, verse 18. It says, he himself has suffered when tempted. That's an interesting phrase. You're probably familiar with the idea that Jesus was tempted, but have you ever stopped to think about the fact that Jesus suffered when he was tempted? What does it mean that Jesus suffered while he was being tempted? I think for one thing, it means that when Jesus experienced temptation... It was repulsive and disgusting to him, unlike you and me. We are people who, in some sense, enjoy temptation. We like to know where the line is, and then we want to get as close to that line as we can without crossing it. Why? Because we're fascinated with, we're obsessed with what's on the other side. We don't try to run away from the line, we want to get as close to the line as we can. We're people who pay incredible amounts of money to watch people on a screen, a big screen or a small screen or a phone screen, 
do wicked and immoral things. Why do we enjoy that? It's because in some sense we enjoy the temptation. And you can walk away and say, oh, I'm just watching them, I'm not doing it. But there's something in us that's not quite right when we enjoy and we're fascinated with the temptation. Jesus suffered when he was tempted. He was repulsed by it. He was disgusted by the thought of it. And he obeyed where we don't. Right? We give in really pretty easily to temptation. Jesus never gave in to temptation. Jesus was tempted to a degree, to a magnitude that you and I have never been tempted to. Right? Jesus took the, the dial all the way up to 10. You and I give, give in and give up and cross the line when the dial gets up to like 0.3. He never sinned. He experienced the full magnitude of temptation. Uh, let me give you an illustration to help you think of, of what this is like. Uh, on staff here at the church, if it's somebody's birthday, we usually have birthday cake and the birthday person gets to pick where we go eat lunch on Tuesday. And so I think Jake had a birthday this week, but a lot of us were gone. So the last birthday I was here for was Jennifer's. So it was Jennifer's birthday, and Jennifer wanted to go eat at Saltgrass, so we went to Saltgrass to eat. And then we came back, and in the afternoon we had cake. So you can check your calendars. You should conveniently pop by the church when a staff member has a birthday about 2 o'clock on Tuesday. We're having cake. And we had one of those nothing bunt cakes from Midland. Oh, you know. You know what I'm talking about. They're amazing. Okay? And we slice that thing up, and it's got that big bead of icing down the side. And the question is always, do you want one bead or do you want two beads, or maybe you want three beads. How, how much cake do you want? And we're all there eating icing and cake, mostly icing. And one of the staff members at this last birthday didn't have any cake. This person was on a diet. This person called their diet a shred. And this person said, I'm on a 10-day shred. I can't have any cake. And we ate that cake right in front of this person like <laughs> you cannot imagine. And to make it worse, it was a 10-day shred, and this person was on day nine of the shred. <laughs> Only thing worse would be if it was the actual last day, but day nine's pretty bad. Last day of the shred. And there was temptation involved, not just in looking at the cake, but in other staff members tempting this person it's the ninth day. No one will know. We won't tell anyone. And Hunter had no cake that day. <laughs> Not a piece. Absolutely none. But you understand that when you're on the ninth or the tenth day of a shred, you have faced more temptation than the person who says, I'm going to shred, and then on the very first day has a piece of cake. Right? You haven't experienced a whole lot of temptation. But by the time you get to day nine, you've gone through more temptation. And the book of Hebrews is saying Jesus suffered when he was tempted. He was repulsed by the temptation itself, but he also experienced more of it than you or, you or I do or ever will because he never gave in to it. He never did anything that violated God's command. He never said anything that went against God's command. He never thought or felt anything that went against God's command. He never even wanted to do those things and desired those things in his heart. He suffered when he was tempted. 
and he faced temptation to the fullest degree. Number three, our high priest died as a propitiation. And I'm asking you to fill in the word propitiation. We're going to talk about that. But before we talk about that big Bible word, I want you to just think about the fact that he died. The fact that Jesus died. We talk about that so much at church that sometimes we just don't feel or recognize the magnitude of that statement. That Jesus died. Let me show you a few verses that paint it in a striking way. This is a sermon from Acts 3. And Peter says, You denied the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. What a strange phrase. You killed the one who authored life itself. He died. The one that God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Look at how John describes it as he writes Revelation 1. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet. John at Jesus' feet. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive. The living one, the beginning, died. And he's alive forevermore. It's a striking thought that Jesus, the author of life, the Alpha and the Omega, the living one, died. Not only did he die, but Hebrews 2 says he died as a propitiation for our sins. Look at verse 17. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He was human. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. What does a high priest do? This is what he does. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation, it's a big word. It has a very simple definition. It means that Jesus on the cross took our sin. And in bearing our sin, he took the wrath and the anger of God that should have fallen on us, and he took it, all of it. God's anger with the sin of his people has been satisfied, right? In other places, the Old Testament and the New Testament describes it as Jesus drinking a cup, the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it, all of it. This propitiation, the author of life died. And in his death, he takes the wrath that should have fallen on us. He takes the anger, the punishment, the fury, the rage, the holy indignation that belonged on our shoulders. It fell on his shoulders because he died as a propitiation. Number four, he destroyed the devil. Our high priest destroyed the devil. Verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Most translations use the word destroy. There are a few translations, and you may have one, that says he broke the power. And destroy doesn't mean like instantly annihilated and he's gone forever, but the idea is that he broke the power. Of the devil. And we use the word destroy like that all the time. When you watch a sporting event, you say, Well, what was the outcome of the game? Who won? You say, Oh, they killed them. 
Oh, they destroyed them. I mean, they won convincingly. It wasn't even a contest. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He destroyed the one who had the power of death. That is the devil. He broke his power. And he didn't do it with a display of raw power. He didn't do it by marshalling the hosts of heaven to come fight at his side. He did it through death. He died as a propitiation, taking the wrath of the Father. And in doing so, he destroys the devil. He breaks his power. Last, he delivers his people. Our high priest delivered his people. Verse 15 piggybacks on verse 14. Not only did he destroy the one who had the power of death, verse 15, he delivers all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He delivers his people. I want you to notice the the family language here in Hebrews chapter 2. We've been delivered from the wrath of the Father because the Son died as a propitiation. God's anger towards his people has been satisfied. We have been delivered into his family. Look at verse 11 and 12. It calls us brothers and sisters. Look at verse 13 and, and verse 14. It talks about children. Look at verse 16. We're called the offspring of Abraham, the family of Abraham. All these terms sprinkled throughout the end of Hebrews 2 are saying, look, you used to be God's enemy but you've been delivered. And the one who has the power of death has been destroyed. And the Father's wrath has been poured out on the Son, and you have been brought into the family. You're no longer outsiders. You're no longer enemies. You have been brought into God's own family. And the whole chapter, under this heading in verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. There's a quote. It gets attributed to a lot of different people. You can look it up online and and pick your source, but it says the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. You've probably heard that quote, right? It's the idea that all that has to happen for things to be run amok is for the good folks to just stay back and not do a thing. You don't have to join the bad guys. Just don't do anything at all. That's sort of the idea of Hebrews chapter 2. You don't have to go out in the middle of the night and be a part of a black mass. You don't have to take all the Bibles in your house and burn them on your front lawn. You don't have to go out to your favorite tattoo artist and get the mark of the beast put on your forehead. You don't have to do any of those things. You just have to drift. You just have to not pay attention to what's been declared to us. You just have to sort of coast. It doesn't have to be anything violent or sudden or dramatic. You just have to drift. And the book of Hebrews talks about all this great doctrine, who Jesus is as our high priest and what he's done on our behalf. And the warning in verse 2 is, pay close attention lest you drift away. Do not drift away from this truth. You've got to think about it. You've got to meditate on it. You've got to dwell on it. You've got to place it at the center of your life. It's got to be part of every aspect of who you are and what you do as a human being. Don't drift away. And as you cling to that truth, look at the bookend at the end of the chapter. There's the negative warning. Don't drift. Here's the positive. Because Jesus has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. He can help you. 
He will help you. He's not just going to leave you to yourself. It's not just up to you to cling tightly to Jesus, but if you're one of his people, he will cling tightly to you. He is faithful. He is merciful. He is the high priest who died, taking the Father's wrath that should have fallen on his people. Merciful and faithful, he will help those who are in need. Don't drift away. Fix your eyes on Jesus, knowing that he will help. Let's pray.